everybody. This is Mind Your Money with Miss Be Helpful, a show that highlights people and stories that will inspire you to get your money right. And talking about get your money right today, I have the author of not one, but two, soon to be three personal finance books, Erin Lowry. What's up, Erin? Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Now, for those of you who don't know, Erin's first book was Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together, which uh, I highly recommend the audiobook. I listened to it on audiobook, but like I was just talking to Erin about this before we hit record that if you're a visual learner, it's kind of helpful to see the numbers and see the charts. So, you know, maybe get yourself a hard copy if that's, you know, how you roll. Uh, but she's got a new book coming out soon, which uh, she just mentioned to me that is going to be a lot more suitable for audiobook listeners. That's, you know, it's just my style. So, Erin, um, tell us a little bit. I mean, for those of you out there listening or watching who don't know Broke Millennial, first of all, get your life. Like, follow her everywhere <laughs> because she's awesome. But um, if you're not familiar, Erin, tell them a little bit of background about yourself and uh, a little bit about uh, who you are. It's always such a hard intro to be like, how much should I talk about in this space? (laughs) Let me do my (laughs) elevator pitch on me. Well, as you mentioned, I am a two-time author. First book is Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. Second book is Broke Millennial, Takes on Investing, A Beginner's Guide to Leveling Up Your Money. And I'm going to put it on screen for the people who are visually watching this. Mm -hmm. And the next book is Broke Millennial Talks Money, Script Stories and Advice for Navigating Awkward Financial Conversations. And I think that that one makes it abundantly clear that I just like talking about things that make other people fundamentally uncomfortable. (laughs) I just love going down those rabbit holes with people. My (laughs) friends have seen me clear a room many a time at a party where somebody will say one thing. I'm like, ooh, this is interesting. Let's get into an hour-long conversation. (laughs) Not a fight, not a debate. Like, I just want to know what's making you feel this way. I was at a bachelorette party, I kid you not, and a woman said, I hate rich people. And I was like, "Mm? let's Let's talk. (laughs) And we had a great talk, like an hour about this whole feeling about hating rich people. It was very interesting. I'm really digressing from the overall point. (laughs) It's all good. I like to talk about money and help people figure out their financial lives, learn how to invest is the next step. Mm -hmm. Now I'm kind of on this whole campaign about getting people to talk more about money because it is just so uncomfortable for so many people because we've been sent these messages for our entire lives of that's rude. You're not supposed to talk about that. This is not polite conversation what have you. So, yeah. But I mean, that's why I knew that, I mean, first of all, you'd be the perfect guest just because of your personality and like how open you are and, uh, you know, your humility when it comes to talking about your life and money openly, but also because, yeah, I think that's literally the goal of this show is to have people listen to other people talk about money and sort of model what these conversations could sound like in a comfortable, chill way. And then you could go and do that in your life with your real friends and real family. Yep. We just all need to be talking more. We do. And it's so... I think the thing is that money is an underlying problem for so many people in so many ways. And a lot of it just has to do with how we were raised and what our emotional relationship is to money. Like, yes, there are like certain things, the investing book being a great example of, you just need to know how this works. And so you can go out and get yours in a lot of ways. But on the flip side, you're going to have emotional reactions. You know, we're going through a very volatile stock market right now. Like, just don't look because if you're gonna have an emotional knee-jerk reaction to it that's something you need to know about yourself yeah it's like it's weird to me I've, I've started to learn that about myself that it's better not to look at my like investments and look at stuff like that but I think people are just used to checking their bank accounts so much to protect like what they have and, and check like to make sure that it, the transactions are accurate but you don't have to do that so much with your investment accounts it's a different thing it's not a bank account so different and that's such a good point like yes please check your credit card statements in your bank account because <laughs> lord knows there's always fraudulent crap that is happening. 
I just had to deal with that three days ago. That's why I set up text alerts on everything. Yes. 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 And honestly, I mean, this is kind of random, but also like dual factor authentication. Hello. Oh, yes. Like, let's make sure you have your, if you guys don't know what that is, do a quick Google search, dual factor authentication, and put that on all your accounts, your email account, yes. your financial accounts, your bank account, all of that. And that way, you know, you're getting the text alerts. People, it's just much harder for you to hack your stuff. Um, in addition to obviously knowing what's up with your, with your money. Um, okay, I would definitely want to jump into because you just mentioned your childhood and like people's childhood and tapping into that. That's coming. But first, I want to ask you two questions that I've been opening the show with just to kind of get, you know, the juices flowing, talking about financial habits and, and experiences and memories that we have. Um, so the first one is, what is the most expensive thing that you've ever purchased that you regret to this very day? I wish I had a really good answer to this. Like, oh, I bought this really expensive bag and yada, yada, yada. I'm not real big on stuff. That's not any sort of indictment of people who, yeah. who are just like never, it's never been my thing. My thing. Yeah, I will say one of the most persistent money debates, nay fights that my husband and I have gotten into is the current apartment we live in mm. because I lived in my old apartment. So I've lived in Astoria, Queens, which is in New York for those of you who do not know for closing in on a decade. Wow. No. Closing in, it'll be nine years in June. Oh, I didn't really know that. I thought yeah. you were like a Queens girl official. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I have a lot of Queens pride, too. It's a, <laughs> it's a whole thing. So I had actually lived in my first apartment I moved into in New York. Yeah. I had lived there for seven years. And very long story short, we lived in a row house. We had a nice Greek landlord, as is appropriate for Astoria, <laughs> and came to us and was like, hey, I want to move into your apartment. <laughs> so you guys need to... To move. Hit the road, Jack. Gave us seven months of notice. Oh. Like you can break the lease. Yeah, so it fun. was everything about it was great. Gave us our full security deposit back, oh. even though on our way out the door, I accidentally broke a, a mirror. Like it was just oh. a great situation. Oh. I had something affixed to this wall that had a mirror on it. It was like a 1970s like bar studio looking thing. It had like full <laughs> mirrors and I took it off the wall and it shattered. Oh. Whatever. Again, going so far flung from the point. <laughs> when my husband and I started looking at where we're going to move next, yeah. I really had mixed feelings because I love Astoria, but I grew up moving around a lot and I had okay. spent seven years here and I kind of felt like, well, what's the next adventure? Mm. We live in New York City. There's so many neighborhoods to experience here. Oh, Why yes. don't we try something new? And at the time... I was just getting ready to launch my second book. So I kind of just left all of the apartment hunting to him and he wanted to live mm -hmm. in Astoria. So what did we end up doing? Finding an apartment in Astoria. So A, and like, yeah, sure. I could have pushed back more and whatever, but I had a lot of other things going on. Yeah. And so we had to like move. I was launching a book in the same period. I was about to go on a like nine city book tour. Just things were happening. Yeah. So I delegated. We end up living, staying in Astoria and the apartment we moved into cost... $500 more per month than our old place mm. and was seven minute longer walk to get to the subway oh, than our chill. old place. Oh no, no. I had so many feelings. <laughs> no, so, that's a deal breaker for me. I, for like the first, I would say eight months of us living in this apartment, every month when I paid the rent, I was just, I would get mad. And then I would pick a fight oh, because I got mad about it. And eventually, he finally said to me, you have got to let this go. We signed a two-year lease, by the way. He's like, you've got to let this go because it's done. The decision was made. It's done. 
And when I was writing my third book, I was interviewing a couple and the premise was how to fight fair about money. And the husband of the couple said, and in their scenario, they were talking about paying for a mortgage. She wanted a more expensive house. They ended up getting the more expensive house. And he said, you have to stop rehashing the decision as soon as the decision is made. Mm. Light bulb. I have not once brought it up since then. And I've completely transitioned my feeling about this apartment because there are so many benefits. For example, we moved in quickly. So the landlord didn't get to paint. So he said, you can paint whatever colors you want. So we got to customize our apartment, which does not happen a lot here. I'm watching the video on the YouTube channel. Go check it out because her wall is pink and it's cute. I think. And the wall on the other side, get this is blue look at that i can change up my backdrops for video (laughs) stuff we've got outdoor space our neighbors are so nice like they're like og born and bred new yorkers who are just like have lived here their whole lives are super super nice and it just feels very like neighborhood and community over here that's queens for you though that's queens for you yeah it is that's true and it's one of those things where like i feel like we are getting like the real queens experience as opposed to being like you know, yeah. everybody in here is an actor that lives in this building and has lived here for like six months, blah, blah, blah. No shade. Sorry if that's your experience right now. <laughs> that's everybody that lives in my neighborhood. Well, so I actually, I grew up and was born and raised in Bushwick and moved. I, I lived in Bushwick for a very long time. Like I was just apartment hopping, staying close to my mom so I could get those rice and beans and chicken when I wanted. But then, you know, I kind of was like, I'm going to move in with my boyfriend. I had to compromise. So we picked an apartment together. We moved to Long Island City, Queens, which was literally a few blocks away from where you live, you know, around the time of your yep. holiday party and stuff. We were so close and um and we loved it and everything but I think like I found that when I would talk to people I, they'd be like oh where are you from and I'm like Bushwick they're like oh no like where are you from I'm like oh god are we gonna do that like come on like I'm from Bushwick like yes yeah, some people were raised there and still yep. live there <laughs> like that's a New York thing I mean that's a thing that's happening everywhere but I find that with New York City there's you know certain neighborhoods that really are like that but in Queens you still really feel like you can get a little bit of it all and and other uh, Brooklyn sort of losing that but queens is nice because you kind of still have that you have a lot of people here that are born and bred in queens for sure especially in the part of town that i live in now like it's not a whole lot of the young yuppie yeah like because you gotta gotta walk 15 minutes (laughs) i'm not doing that oh no thank you (laughs) except now i do um but yeah i would say that was one of the biggest Cause it's such a big expense, like an extra $500 per month that starts to add up so quickly. And then you start to think of all the things that you're giving up, like the trips you could be taking and all of that kind of stuff. Right. The the Roth IRA, you could be maxing out, right? Like all those things. I reckoned with it. So I guess I don't (laughs) still regret it, but that definitely, yeah, that was a, that was a top contender. Yeah. All right. That was a thing for a while. So that's a good answer. Uh, what about the opposite side of that? What is a purchase that you made that other people might look at your finances and be like, oh, you're crazy. That is way too expensive. But you stand by that decision because it was worthwhile for you. So I'll give two answers here. One is, and this wasn't so much a purchase when I rescued my first dog. It did. He still had a fairly pricey adoption <laughs> fee. Yeah. And it was, I think, 400 400 450 and he was a senior rescue dog so like first of all come on give me a discount like this dog is not gonna last me 13 to 15 years and I deliberately wanted to adopt a senior but so I rescue him three days later take him to go get fixed and find out he has a heart murmur oh and then it turns into like he needs to be on medication he was the most expensive high maintenance thing in so many ways but 
I would not change a thing. Love of my life, that dog. He was so wonderful. Uh, I won't tell Peach you said that. Oh, he knows. He knows. <laughs> I have admittedly, like, our current dog knows that she's no Mosby. Like, our dog Tasker, <laughs> I love her very much. But your first oh. dog, they just imprint on you in such a special way. And Tasker oh. is our dog. Mosby was my dog. Like, I got Mosby before Peach and I lived together. Yeah. When Peach moved in, Mosby was like, no, thank you. <laughs> Who's Move to the not left. Having not having it. No. Tasker's like, oh, everybody's home. Yay. Oh, that's so yeah. cute. I, I, you're, such a, you're such a dog mom. I mean, you really oh. talk about your dogs like they're your babies. I mean, they are. They are your babies. Like, listen, I, I just think, like, I understand the difference between dogs and humans. Like, I'm not that extreme. Right. I get it. Like, I didn't birth this out you of know, my body. You know those people that put their dogs in strollers? Those are the ones we're talking about here. Do you do that, Erin? No, she's too big for that, A. <laughs> She is. Yeah. She's a big dog. See, I think I would only do that just to troll people. I just, I do think that would be kind of funny, but she definitely gets pampered and she does sleep in our bed and like, you know, all of that. My second expensive purchase, I will upgrade on a plane. I think it's hundred percent worth it. Travel. Yeah. And that is a highly debated, I'm actually writing an article about this very topic right now because so many people are like, no, I'll just fly the cheapest fly flight cheap so cheap I can flight. get the most. Yep. I'm like, nope. Not anymore. If I can upgrade, <laughs> I'm doing it. If it's, yeah. I mean, I have thresholds on whether it's my miles or my money. But oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, same. Yeah, I will never, and I also will never ever buy a basic anything ticket on any airline. I don't oh, think it's ever worth you know it. What? I have been like, literally I've been burned so many times buying stupid basic economy flights that I learned my lesson because I always think like, oh, I'm saving money. I'm saving money. You're saving money in the long run more if you just upgrade a little bit yeah. because the basic economy is going to charge. It's going to cost you more in the long run. And then I if something happens, happen. like if they cancel the flight, you're like still screwed half the time. You don't get your money back. You don't get to reschedule. Oh, well, you had the basic economy, so you get zero support. Like what? It, yeah. it doesn't, literally doesn't make any sense. I understand if you didn't buy insurance, but like you should still be able to get support with the purchase you made for that first basic economy flight, like the original purchase. It's so far. So the insurance is such a gambit because there is so many things that it quote unquote doesn't cover. So I'm like, so basically if no one dies, I, this is pointless. Yep. And it's the same thing with, I mean, obviously insurance, we talk about a whole separate, we go into a whole separate episode about insurance, but it, I mean, it's, it's, it's similar across, uh, across insurance types. I mean, you could do that. You could have a health insurance. You think you're covered and you know, you get bit by a snake when you go camping and snake bites ain't covered by most insurance. I mean, you just, that's so specific. Did you get bit by a snake on a camping trip? <laughs> no, but so at my job, I write these weekly episodes about um, current events. And a few months ago, there was one that was like a quote unquote viral article about this girl whose family had a camping trip and she got bit by a snake on the trip. And her parents went and tried to, you know, get all the, you know, anti-venom stuff for, for snake bites. And it was like insanely expensive, like a hundred grand. And none of it was covered by their insurance, even though they had some of the best insurance in their country. So I just always remember that. And I'm always like if I if I'm in a place where there is potentially could be possibly a snake I'm not playing no like I'm wearing my rain boots I'm not that doing this insane yeah well it's fun insane. fact everybody's learning something today right, right right we're here to learn guys we're here to learn 
<laughs> All right, so let me see um, what I had next. I wanted you to talk about your childhood because I re we re you referenced it already a little bit earlier that people have to kind of dig into your childhood experiences and thoughts and memories. And even in your book, at the very beginning of your first book, there's some like blank um, note-taking spaces for you to talk about. Like what were some of your early memories with money? You know, did you, uh, what did you spend money on when you were little? Like try to think about these things because whether you believe it or not, they impact your current money mindset. And so tell us a little bit about your childhood and, uh, you know, what were money experiences that you remember early on? Well, a lot happened. <laughs> and the one that I most famously reference in the book is the Krispy Kreme the donut, donut story. Yeah, yeah. I, that's how the first book opens. If anyone's listening has ever heard me on any other podcast, you've also probably heard this story. So I will keep it brief. But essentially, my parents were not big on handing me or my little sister money if we wanted to buy something. The first rule was we had to pay for at least 50% of it. Some of the time, my parents were like, I'm not buying you that. For example, one of my most pivotal memories, I actually want to change my expensive purchase answer. Because <laughs> do you remember in like, I don't know, I'm 30 years old. So I was in third grade where clogs were like all oh the rage. Oh my goodness. Wait, I have a picture of me and my sister sitting on a plastic covered Caribbean ass couch in Bushwick in like 98 wearing clogs. And they were probably like felt clogs with like a cork base they were like you walk around and be like, clack, clack, like clack, clack, clack. And you know it's funny yeah. when, when I, me in the hood we didn't really know what they were called but we knew they were fashionable and so <laughs> you called them clocks like clicking time clocks like ticking clocks like we were like oh i want a pair I mean, of clocks i want a pair of clocks you weren't far off <laughs> it's because the noise like you wear them and yeah. you'd be like clock 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 it was so ridiculous so all the rage all the rage. clogs all the rage. and so that was a good example of my parents were like definitively like absolutely not we're not buying you that <laughs> you have to spend your own money in full to buy yourself a pair of clogs wow. which i did for 13.95 from payless shoe store yeah i went to a catholic school and literally the week after i bought my clogs they banned being able to wear clogs because it wasn't part of the uniform so my first like big splurge purchase of my life waste yeah. maybe Wait. that's why i'm like real weird about buying things these days you want to talk about childhood memories there you go uh, you were traumatized but back to the Krispy Kreme donuts so that gives you some context of how my parents were about money yeah. and when i my memory of this summer it was summer of 96 i was seven years old and i really wanted a nerf gun super soaker like those were Everything. i was a pool kid i was at the pool Oh. Yeah, all day, every day I was on like swim team and then my parents yes. would just like drop us off at the pool and be like, see you in a couple hours. This, no, episode, is like pure, this episode is pure nostalgia for all my our 90s babies out there. Because well, we, I was born in the 80s. True. We were born in the 80s, but grew up in the 90s. So kids yeah. that grew up in the 90s. We're, I mean, we're 90s kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my mom was having a yard sale and I thought, hey, if people will come and buy my parents used junk, I can probably get them to buy Krispy Kreme donuts from some cute little kids. <laughs> So I pitched this idea to my dad. He was like, yeah, sure. I'll go buy you the donuts the morning of the yard sale. Let's get ready for more nostalgia. I set up my little Fisher Price picnic table for the donuts. I strapped on a fanny pack and I was in business. Sold out real quick. And then my dad comes over and I had had my little sister. She was four at the time, like kind of in and out working for me. And he looks at this pile of quarters. Admittedly, the amount I made changes every time I tell this story. But let's just say it was like around. Yeah. Let's say it was $20 worth of quarters. Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, ooh, going to Toys R Us, RIP, and getting two Nerf gun super soakers. Yes. That was going to be great. And my dad looks at this pile of quarters and he goes, okay, well, 
I bought the donuts for you and that cost me $8 mm-hmm. and your little sister worked for you for a little bit. So you need to pay her $2. So mm-hmm. actually your net profit is $10. And then he took the money from me. But you know, your dad was actually kind because he just took his return of investment. Not He didn't right. ask for a return on his investment. So. He did not. He was very kind. So that moment, as well as candy tax at Halloween. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That one I love more so than the donut story because the donut story is a little bit more of the entrepreneurial stuff. And I think like a lot of people talk about, you know, training your kids early to be entrepreneurs, you know, cookies and things like that. But I like this one because there's a concept of taxes that most people do not understand as adults, let alone as children. So tell us yeah. about how your dad used candy to teach you about taxes. So candy tax, Halloween, we go out trick-or-treating, come back, dump the candy on the floor. And my dad comes over and he's like, okay, well, your mom and I took you out trick-or-treating, so we put in some work, so you owe us a cut of your candy. For our time, for our energy, yep. for our supervision. For those costumes. My mom made Halloween costumes. She was like a costume <laughs> savant. Ooh. One year I went as a tarantula. She dressed me in all black and then took black pantyhose, stuffed them with cotton, oh, used smart. fishing line in between. Yes. So like my... Yeah, all like on the cheap, but yes very creative. Yes to your mom. Yes to your and mom. And then she gave me vampire teeth and dribbled like blood down my <laughs> mouth. It was very impressive. OMG, your mom is like the bomb. DIY Halloween She was great. Mama. She was like ahead of her time with Pinterest stuff. I was about to say, she, I hope she's on Pinterest with these costume ideas. <laughs> she would have been a Pinterest mom for, well, I don't feel like she would have cared, but she would have been good at being a Pinterest mom. <laughs> so dump this candy out. My dad takes, not only just takes them, but like, Primo pieces. Like he was going from like my Snickers, my Reese's, oh, the best stuff. stuff like that. Best. Listen, I wised up, and this is not the lesson you should learn from this, but I realized the next year that I could hide the good pieces in my oh, costume. Oh, tax evasion. So, oh, exactly. Oh. I'm like, now it's starting to sound like tax evasion, but let's reframe this to make it sound like taking advantage of your tax advantage retirement counts, like your IRAs yeah. or your 401ks. That's yeah. really what it was. Back right. away before it gets taxed. That's okay. I'll take it. I'll buy it. Listen, <laughs> I am so terrified of the IRS. <laughs> Of the government entities, they definitely scare me the most. Honestly, my first lesson in taxes was when I messed up my whole taxes. So I remember I had gotten an education award, like a grant that I could put towards my master's degree because I did a program called Teach for America where they give you the money to pay for, uh, you know, any education related expenses. It was like about $5,500, right, in one year. And so I had no idea that that was going to count as taxable income because it was a grant. It's an education grant. But in- Yeah, that's bull. It's such bull. And but when they sell you that program and recruit you for you know side note i love tfa i had a great experience if you want to ask me about it reach out to me but uh they never let you know really they don't make it so so clear up front that that's going to be taxed as income so when i'm filing my taxes i'm going through i'm like yep oh wait i got that education grant yeah that's not income Uh -uh, i gave that straight to my master's program so i don't have to talk about it two years later three grand because it was like the yeah. portion of that the money penalties. and the penalties and the interest. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I was like three grand. Where am I supposed to put 3000 I'm a teacher with no money and credit card debt. Yep. That was my first lesson in don't mess with the IRS. Oh, that rhymes. There you go. Whole video. I also will say I'm like the least fun person to play the, if you win the lottery game with, cause I'm always like, well, first about 40% of it's going to go away to taxes. Think about and that. And then how are we talking about a payout? Are we talking about like lump sum? Or are we talking about distribution? Let's talk about it. You better think about that before you get that lottery ticket. <laughs> yep. 
That is so true. I was like, at the end of the day, psh, it's not even that much money. Yeah. So, I mean, as you guys can hear, Erin and, and C, if you're watching this, Erin is that friend who, like, whose parents taught her all the things that you wish your parents and your teachers had taught you about money. That's Erin. And that's why Erin's books are so fabulous, because she's been thinking about this stuff and, and, and like, utilizing it in her own life since she was little. Like, that's so rare. Like, I feel like most of my friends are a hot mess and ask me questions. And mind you, I just got my financial life together, like, a few years ago. So, I mean, to have somebody who's been doing this since early it's young it's it's a breath of fresh air because you know your your ish you know what you're talking and, about and well i also think it's very important to clarify that i went to college for journalism and theater it is not like i was like oh i love money let's do finances i'm like let's pick two of the most right. irresponsible options for a college degree <laughs> and then graduate into a recession oh, and see what happens i don't know i think i, I think i got you i think i got you beat i my one of my majors was art history hey so, at least you <laughs> worked at a museum that was my plan. I was yeah. like, I'm going to be working at a museum. I'm going to do arts education. I love kids. I love people. I'll give them tours around the museum exhibits. And then I entered at a museum. I was like, this is boring AF. Hell to no, no, no. I need to work at a much more fun job than this. I'm done with this museum stuff. So. I will stand by a liberal arts education any day of the week, though, because I do say what I do now professionally is the perfect blend of journalism and theater. I, I wholeheartedly second that as an art history major who never used her major after college. <laughs> but you use it in different ways. Like you had to learn how to write and you had to learn how to interpret things and you lear- had yeah. to learn how to communicate about complicated yeah. ideas. Like that That's is true. stuff that is so, so valuable. And also I hated math. That was my worst subject in school. And one of the things that annoys me the most, and I will not accept from anyone, is this idea of I'm not good at math and therefore I am not good at money. That is so true. Two that is things. so true. I have seen people who hate math see money like as a way to enjoy math. Like they see math differently when they see it as money. Yeah. And I mean, you're, it sounds like you're one of those people. I always I loved am. math. I was a math nerd, but I never learned about money through math. So when I finally saw that money was math, I got even more excited. because like, Oh, this is math. I like that. So you're like, the reverse good. of me. I'm like, if there's not a dollar <laughs> sign in front of it, my brain will shut down. <laughs> Honestly, even if there is a dollar sign at some points, for instance, I'm also that person. Anytime I have to calculate tip, my phone is coming out and I'm opening the calculator app every single time. Two reasons. I think I saw saw you post about that on Twitter or on Instagram. And I'm like, wait, what, Erin, girl? I'm I'm, I'm judging silently, Erin, because I just moved the decimal place. I just moved the decimal place over one to the left. That's 10% times two, and that's 20%. Done. Listen, I, a couple of things. (laughs) My brain, and I, I blame flashcards, multiplication flashcards in second grade for this problem. My brain just shuts down when I have to do mental math. It's like trying to protect myself. It's like, you hated this as a child, so we're not doing this now. And then I'm just terrified of ever stiffing someone on their tip. I'm like, if I do this in my head and I screw up and then it's like a 10% tip or whatever, that's not fair. I'm like, I just want to make sure everybody's good. We're getting the money that we deserve. And I don't look like an idiot. So, no, that's fair. That's fair. I respect and, that. You just want to like check your math and make sure you're good. And my friends troll I, me every time. <laughs> and I just stand I, in my truth. Add me to that list because I'm definitely trolling, girl. I'm like, girl, just a rounding estimation. Well, you know what? I, so I taught... I probably was on the same boat with you before I taught, but when I was a teacher, I taught third and fourth grade math. And even though we learned um, old algorithm type math where you stack up the numbers and you add them up, when I had to teach, they were shifting all the standards to like common core and all this stuff. And a lot of people hate that. But what I will say about it that I liked, it made me so much 
freaking better at mental math. Like now I can do mental math without a problem. I can, I have a concept of really big numbers in my head because I taught kids how to learn math conceptually, which I never learned as a kid. So I think just because I had to teach it that way, I got better at it. And uh, yeah, so now I'll just like move the decimal place over to the left, double that rounded, you know, about, and that's 20% or at the worst, you're going to have like a 19% tip, which is still pretty good. So you're you're fine. We'll do a tutorial (laughs) where you can teach me how to do common core math. Yes. And then I can stop embarrassing myself with my calculator. Yes. Mental math. Shout out to all my parents out there right now during coronavirus who are doing mental math with their kids and are going crazy because they didn't learn it that way. I see you. I hear you. Reach out to me if you have questions because I love mental math and I know that it's frustrating, but it is so good for your kids. I promise it's going to make their brains like mental math. And Erin, as you can see, needs that. So this is so true. Don't make your kids grow up to be me. <laughs> no, please stop, girl. Stop. Opposite of that. Definitely hashtag goals. Um, so actually, speaking of hashtag goals, let's go a little bit into, your, you know, what made you start this writing journey? You were a journalism major, so definitely that probably had something to do with it. But what made you actually start the blog as, as the first sort of avenue to share what you, your you know, wisdom was and all your learnings were? And then eventually decide, like, I'm going to make this like a series of books. I'm going to become an author and do this like for real, for real. Honestly, I was bored. <laughs> and Boredom. and I think that that's like a, a funny way to lead into it. But there's two things that kind of happen simultaneously. One, so when I moved to New York, 2011, my first year here, I worked as a page for the Late Show with David Letterman, and then I was a barista at a very famous coffee chain with a mermaid logo. And everybody out there right now is thinking, wait, like Kenneth from Thirty Rock, like that yes, kind of page? ma'am, like Kenneth from Thirty Rock, <laughs> except I worked exclusively with the audience instead of like in the inner workings. And then um, my third job was babysitting. And that first year here, I made a whopping $23,000. Wow. Yes. (laughs) Look at at me. Uh, Which if you've ever even visited New York, you know, is a very painful amount of money to survive on. Then at at the end of that, I was honestly really tired. And I just desperately wanted, you know, benefits and a more stable paycheck. And I applied... Like long story short, both the Letterman gig I got through networking from my college. The next job yeah. I got was in public relations because somebody that I knew from college also had a job at a boutique public relations firm. PR was not something I was innately interested in, but it had a thirty-seven thousand five hundred dollar paycheck. Ooh, over ten grand boost in income, big money and <laughs> benefits, including an immediately hundred percent vested four hundred one k plan, which was great. Oh. They actually did have really good benefits there. Just paid real poorly. Yeah. I mean, usually when you don't get paid that well, the benefits package has to make up for it. Otherwise they can't keep people there. So that makes sense. Yeah. So while I was working that job though, I just really was feeling kind of adrift in terms of career creativity. Like I knew long-term that's not a career that I wanted. Definitely showed at work. Like I was 23 and like kind of doing like above bare minimum. So enough that I could like kind of get a crappy bonus at the end of the year for like $300, mm-hmm. but not so oh, much that they were like, this girl's going to move up the ranks quick. <laughs> right. Amazon purchasing it during your, your you know, during uh, your shift. Well, I started <laughs> writing and like part of it was I've always loved writing. It's a way that I've always expressed yeah. myself. If nothing else has come through during this interview, it's that I love a good storytelling experience. Yes, yes I love that too. And I had this kind of serendipitous moment where I'm like, I want to write about something, but I feel like it would be better if I focused on a topic to kind of keep myself honest. And 
I never read blogs. I did not know personal finance blogging was a thing when I started. Like there was no one that I really followed or anything like that. I just knew that people blogged, like that was a thing. Let me refresh. This was the end of 2012. Like that was still what people did. We weren't vlogging so much yet. We weren't podcasting so much yet. So I also had this very serendipitous conversation with a friend of mine at the time where she had also been a Letterman page. She had moved to New York to be an actress, you know, kind of the classic story, but she was working as an executive assistant to two like very high powered people at a major, major media company and hated her job. And I said, I was like, listen, I'm a little confused. At the time we were 23 years old. I'm like, you have no kids. You don't have student loans. You don't have credit card debt. Your parents could bail you out of this situation. Like you are prime to be able to just work a job to make ends meet, but that's flexible enough for you to go out and pursue this acting dream. Yep. That's right. So why aren't you? And she looked at me and she goes, I don't know. Money just stresses me out. All I do is hope I have enough at the end of the month. Yep. And that for me was a very light bulb moment. And I get how stupid that sounds. Yeah. But what you grow up around is normal. Exactly. And as we've established, exactly. I grew up in a house where we talked about money. And I just had this assumption that everyone talked about money. So when I was making $23,000, it wasn't fun, but I still lived, quote unquote, within my means. Like they were very meager. And I was taking home leftovers from Starbucks to subsidize my grocery bill. But I was still like doing what I could to kind of live within this because yeah. I just didn't want to take on credit card debt. And then I started to notice like, all right, well, if she's this uncomfortable and she comes from a very privileged background, like what What is happening? What else is happening out there? So then I start asking and I started, you know, I said at the beginning, I like asking awkward conversational questions and seeing where people will go with me. (laughs) No one wanted to talk about money. No one. Oh, girl. You better off asking about sex. Yeah. Oh, people will open up about all that. Yep. yep. (laughs) They do not care. Positions, numbers, check. I've had people talk to me about like STDs. I'm like, you won't tell me your credit card debt situation, but you will tell me about an STD. Hello. How does that make sense, girl? Come on now. (laughs) It does not. And like, no shame either way. Like things happen. But like, why are we so uncomfortable talking about the one and not the other? Exactly. So that's really what the impetus was for me to start BrokeMillennial.com is I just wanted a place where I'm like, well, maybe I'll just share these kind of silly stories of how my parents taught me about money and then link it to things that are currently happening in my life to show like, this is sort of the foundational steps to get to here. And I just started a lot of storytelling. Again, I was just talking to a friend the other day about, it's so fun to have all of this writing from back in 2013 when Mm -hmm. I'm like very early 20s trying to survive in New York, explaining how I'm handling my money, because you kind of start to forget as you start to earn more money, as you get to a different place in life, like you kind of forget how both painful, but innovative yes. you are at that phase. Yeah, you're thrifty, you're creative, you're, you got, you got to be resourceful. You know, that's what so it much. is. You have to be. It's, it's not because you want to be, it's because you just sheer necessity. You have to be resourceful. Yeah. And there were ways that I was taking so much advantage of the living in this city that I feel like I don't now. I mean, I was seeing off-Broadway shows for free because I would usher and then get to sit in there for free. And, you know, it's also a different time value of money, right? Like as you start to earn more, you're not willing to like spend four hours waiting online for rush tickets That's or right. whatever but it back, is. Back, 
and your time is you're able to you're willing to trade more of your time for those things because you just don't have the financial means to trade for it yeah. but as you get older you start to realize oh well time is kind of money and then you start to shift but I, I totally agree I remember doing things that take so much time to save a little bit of money and to me at that time it was worth it and I was proud of that but I probably wouldn't do some of those things now and there's you know? no there's like I'm glad I did all of those things when I did that yeah. and my life was so different like I wasn't married. I didn't have, I didn't even have a dog. Like there was no dedication or like oh. my time was just mine. I could do whatever I wanted with it. I didn't have that's, to share with anybody. Listen, that's describing my life right now. And I love it. I mean, I have my boyfriend here, but he's kind of like my pet. But other than that, that's but it. You still, like he still has some level of demand on your time, just simply in the yes. sense of you yes. want to spend time with him. A, but like sometimes you need to do things that he wants to do. Yeah. That's right. That's right. You like when you really care about somebody, you start to value the things that they value. Now, I really don't mind it. I will go all the way in the middle of what in New Jersey to visit his parents because it makes him happy actually makes me happy, too. So you start to as you, you know, you, you give people into your life, you start to make decisions about, you know, at first it might seem like a sacrifice, but eventually you do adapt and you start to enjoy things other people enjoy. And that kind of carries over to money. Right. You're able to yeah. spend money in ways that maybe you wouldn't before by yourself, but you're willing to do it now more than before. Or you just let them do the thing they enjoy and don't stand in their way. For me, <laughs> football. Oh, yes. I love all sorts of sports. Football is just not one of them. I can't get on board. I have a lot of feels. My husband wow. is one of the biggest Buffalo Bills fans you will ever meet. Man <laughs> knows football inside out, backwards and forwards, and loves. It was even in my wedding vows to him that I will not make plans at 1 o'clock on a Sunday during football season. <laughs> well, you don't have to worry about that now because there's no sports at all. <laughs> I love it so much, <laughs> but it's not football season. So oh. it'll be back probably by the time football season starts. Oh. But that's one of those things where like, listen, I don't, I don't actively sit there and watch it with him. I usually do other things, but I uh, like, I don't support make plans him. Yeah, that support time. him. Let him yeah. do his thing and uh, you do yours. That's, yeah. that's totally uh, legitimate. And that's, uh, I, I think that's valid. I think that's a smart approach because when you, I think what happens with people, with money, I mean, I'm not like, I don't do couples money advice or anything like that. Like I try to stay away from it because me and my boyfriend are, we are, everything is split separate. We do not share finances. We do not, uh, you know, have a joint account. We don't like everything is like, he has his own separate accounts. I have my own separate accounts and we split everything 50, 50, uh, unless it like makes sense to do it otherwise, which we'll talk about. But, um, um, I do notice, I, I have noticed that like when you do get into relationships, generally on average, people tend to think that there's this requirement that now you have to do joint accounts or that you have to share finances this way or that way. And they have to put all your money together. I mean, you had a recent uh, article, um, girl, you write for all the media sources. So I don't know which one, but <laughs> it was USA you know, Today. You, you and I know exactly what you're talking and about. And I thought that piece was so good because it was just like, that's exactly what I've been trying to say to people. And you know, you, you do what works for you and your boo. And yeah. I am just, I'm throwing rhymes left and right today you do what works for you and your boo. like, it. like it, it, it doesn't matter what people think makes sense you know and I mean? the way you just described your financial situation it's perfectly valid to do in a marriage like you don't have yes. to be 100 percent joint if you don't want to be you that. have to do what makes sense for you what makes sense for you at the time now the one thing i will say is when you're married yeah the other person still does have some legal rights to your money and that's a whole different conversation. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, 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 that is not. That is actually part of this conversation. So if you guys have not um, heard of or listened to or it's not on your radar, um, the, the podcast called This is Uncomfortable, it is such a phenomenal, is it Marketplace? Marketplace. Yes, Marketplace. Yes. Money, the market, yeah. It's a Marketplace podcast. Rina Reyes, she's fabulous as a host on that show. And she actually had Aaron at Peach on the show recently to talk about 
signing a prenup or like arranging a prenup yes. for this marriage. And this is a very hot topic. Like I was at a, a, a lunch recently with like my family, I mean, before this whole Corona, everybody's in the house thing. I was having lunch with my family when people did those sorts of things. And we like, we were talking about, you know, money came up and we we're talking about whatever. And I said, you know, honestly, Jamil and I haven't really talked about marriage at all, but if we did, I would a hundred percent introduce this idea of signing a prenup because I think every relationship should at least entertain the idea because it's just basically insurance on your arrangement it's like getting renter's insurance it's like mm -hmm. getting insurance on your house like it's just protecting the arrangement that you're making and the terms and conditions and you set the terms and conditions which is the beautiful thing and not some company you know and so they went like what like yeah. oh my gosh Jamil run like this woman's crazy I can't believe you're dating our sister she's nuts and I was just like wait what you guys seriously like why is a prenup such a bad word? And and then I just thought about you. I was like, when I have her on the show, I gotta ask her about the prenup. So go ahead, tell us about how you and Peach kind of decided to do that and what that was like. It's not a big deal. Everyone needs to calm down about them is my first thing. And listen, I think everyone listening is already having an emotional reaction, which is great. And I wanna lean into that and talk about why you're having that. I also yeah. wanna clarify, we both keep saying Peach, that is my husband. He has a nickname. <laughs> that I use for all things Broke Millennial related. I don't share his real yeah. name. That is that is his Broke Millennial name. Right. And he responds to it in real life, which is also great. And <laughs> other people outside of me call him that. Yeah. So, prenup. <laughs> First of all, and as you said, I like to position it as marriage insurance because the reason people have such an emotional reaction is it gets perceived as a divorce contract, which That's isn't right. a wrong way to think about it because ultimately what you're doing is having a discussion about financially, how things would be handled if your partnership were to be dissolved. Right. Now, here's the thing. You already do have a prenup when you get married. It's just the default laws of your state. Mm. The state is already deciding what they perceive as fair. Now, what you need to know is what your state perceives as fair. Does that seem fair to you? Does it align with what you think is fair? Yeah. Yes. And your relationship and all of that. Every state is a little bit different. You also need to familiarize yourself with the, I believe it's nine community property states that exist in the United States for my U.S. listeners, especially ones like Texas, mm -hmm. um, I think New Hampshire. There's a, there's nine of them. And they're very much like 50-50 split. Doesn't matter why you're getting divorced in yeah, a lot I'm of ways. About, I'm shocked about New Hampshire. Texas does not shock me, but New Hampshire so does. Texas kind of surprises me because that feels a very like owner's rights state i don't know 50 yeah oh yes that's true yeah, so like, like 50 is also just kind of like eh, that doesn't that's not uh such a modern way to think about it because people should kind of prepare themselves to leave with what they put in with some you know asterisks next to those terms but yeah I, texas i don't know maybe that's in my mind but new hampshire sounds shocking to me so you need to think about and is a prenup right for everyone Financially, probably not. They can be very expensive. Ooh, I would say great point. I did not even consider yeah. that. I'm going to talk to my family about this. Great point. So, I mean, you could go online and download a template and sign it, but that doesn't 100% mean that it's legal. You need to get notarized. So a prenup can be uh, expensive. It depends on where you live and the price of lawyers there. It also depends on how complicated your prenup's going to be. Yeah. I would ballpark between three to $6,000 that you're probably going to spend on a prenup. Yeah. And because you each need a lawyer. Both parties have to get represented by a different lawyer. Yeah. 
Wow. Because one lawyer can't represent both of your interests. That just doesn't work. That's a quick way to get your prenup voided. That's right. Now, the one thing that I do like to reposition that kind of sticker cost is it's like paying an upfront lump sum on an insurance policy. If you prorated that out and said, you know, we're going to be married for 10 years, it's like 50 bucks a month. Yep. Hopefully you never have to use the prenup. Like when we signed ours, that's what my attorney said. He's like, put it in a drawer and let's hope you never have to look at it again. That's, but that's what you think when you get any type of insurance, right? Like right. when you get insurance for car accidents, you're not planning for a car accident. You're just protecting right. yourself when it, if and when it happens. When you get healthcare coverage, you're not saying, telling yourself, I'm going to get sick and need surgery. But when if and when it happens, you've got the protection. But that's right. why I think like the concept is so directly correlated to other types of insurance that I don't know why people make it such a big deal. But um, They make it a big deal because we, instead of looking at what marriage actually is, and that is that it is a contractual agreement where a merger of assets takes place under the law, they're looking at it as something about love and trust. And it is like, listen, yeah, of course you should be marrying somebody that you love. Of course you should be marrying somebody that you trust implicitly. However, things happen. Life is long. You cannot control another person because I so often have people tell me I would never leave my spouse. doesn't matter what happens. I would never leave my spouse. Easier said. That's fine. Yeah. But also that's fine if that's your decision, but you can't control that your spouse won't leave you. Ooh, love that. And that's my Mm -hmm. thing is like, it's about protecting both of you. It's about deciding what is fair. And it's about deciding what is fair when you are very much in love with each other and not when you're like down slinging in the mud, having a fight. And it makes a divorce, which is already very, very expensive, a much faster, cleaner, simpler, and inexpensive process yes. compared to what else can happen. I love that. That that sort of, again, with this other types of insurance analogy, like directly correlates to when people say like, oh, I'm not going to get the most expensive car insurance. I'm going to get the basic. I don't need full coverage because I'm a good driver. What about the other drivers around yeah. you, though? They could be crazy drivers. Are you preparing for them to smash into your car, even though you were driving in your lane? Like... Or like a branch can just fall on your car when it's parked outside. Like things just happen. That's right. And my thing too with the prenup that I would challenge everybody to experience, two things. One, make sure you very much understand the divorce laws in your state. Yeah. And if you think it's fair. Two, have the conversations that are required to be had in order to get a prenup. Because the best mm-hmm. part of the prenup process is you have to have, yes, painfully, like potentially painful, definitely sometimes awkward conversations about how you think about money, what you perceive as fair, things like, are you going to need to take care of family members in the future? Things like if you inherit money from someone, no matter how modest, what is a fair way to divide that up? How should that get used? Yeah. And you need to have all these conversations, whether or not you're getting a prenup before you get married. You should know everything about your partner's financial life before you say I do and sign that marriage license. Ooh, say it again for the people in the back. You so everything. Oh my goodness. Yes. There Debt, assets, there. income, yes. goals, yes. lifestyle expectations. Like it's, it's more than just what is on paper. Yeah. And so much of this, you are forced to both discuss and disclose when you're having a prenup conversation. So one of the things you can do, one of the people I interviewed for my third book that I really loved is she and her husband went to, I think it was like legal zoom or Nolo or like yeah. one of those kind of sites uh-huh. and downloaded a prenup template and talked through it. And that's a really great idea. Like, even if you're not going to sign it for whatever reason, have the conversation. That's right. 
that's so that's such a that's such a good tip. I mean, honestly, I feel like what happened and and this reminds me of other things in, in life where people don't prepare for the worst too. Like maybe two three years ago now, goodness, I can't even believe I don't remember. But my 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 grandpa, my paternal grandpa's uh, side died, and it was sort of unexpected. I mean, he was sick, but we, we he was he was recovering in the hospital. Everything seemed fine, and then all of a sudden, um, you know the 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 nurse's chart on the, in the room said that you couldn't give him any hard food yet or solid food. He had to only eat mashed potatoes or, you know, you know, things that were, um, whatever liquefied or, you know, uh, in the, in the blender and somebody didn't read the chart and they gave him bread. And when we went to find him, he had breadcrumbs all in his throat and he did not die from health related causes. He was, he was asphyxiated and he literally couldn't breathe when he was dying. Cause he was, he couldn't swallow solid food. And that's why he wasn't supposed to have it. It was the most heartbreaking thing. Literally, my family like kind of like fell apart and was just such a mess, especially my aunts and uncles on my dad's side, because they they really thought he was going to come out of the hospital in a couple of days. And so when that happened, zero preparation, zero pre-conversations, zero talk or understanding or clarity around what do we do with grandpa's social security income? What's going to happen to, you know, the, the land that he left back in Dominican Republic? Who is going to take over the finances and responsibilities that he was generally like, you know, doing with his son back in the Dominican? Like, how are we going to split the cost of his funeral? Who's going to pay for it? Like, no one talked about any of that. And that was probably the most difficult thing for us was that while we were trying to grieve grandpa and like, Abuelito literally just had like, Abuelo is gone. And we have to accept that. And here we are trying to talk about Papawelo's life and like talk about how like we miss him and make this like a time of mourning and but also like celebrate his life. And yet at the same time, we have to stress about these financial decisions that we are not prepared, that we didn't prepare for. How much easier would that have been for us if we were allowed to mourn and celebrate his life and do whatever we want to do? And those decisions would have already been decided way before he even got sick and way before that tragic incident happened. So everything you just said, one, I'm so sorry. And two, that's why you have a will. And that's, that's not about him. That's about like everything you're describing about like the pain that your family is in. That is why I genuinely believe a will is the most loving act that you can bestow to your family because you're making the decisions for them. And then they're allowed to just have their time to grieve and they don't have to be stressed about what would you have wanted? Yep. How do you want to be buried? How do you want to be remembered? Where did you want your money going? It is so, so important. I get on the conversation about like wills, power of attorney, advanced healthcare directives. Like those are the three pieces of paperwork that are critical. Yeah, and right. it's again, just like a prenup, painful to think about and talk about because you're thinking of an, the inevitable, like we are all going to die. Like yeah. maybe you don't get divorced, but you're definitely going to die. Like I can promise <laughs> you that one. All right. If you're still not bought in on the prenup thing, you got to be on board with yeah. Please get on the will train with me. <laughs> And I think the other big thing is you have to talk to your parents about it. And I think, again, yes. positioning it where it's not at all, because sometimes it can be like a little slimy when you don't mean it to be where it's like, so what's your will? Right. How much am I getting? Like that, it can come off like that. So you yes. just have to be careful to be like, this isn't about me. Yeah. I need to know, well, it is about you, but I need to know what you want. Yes. So that I don't have to be guessing when the time comes. That's right. And so that it gives me the emotional space to experience the feelings I'm going to have and to grieve the way I need to grieve. Yeah. And it, especially if both of your parents are together and still alive, making sure that one isn't like, 
left not knowing how to pay the mortgage or keep the lights on or where all the money is. Absolutely. It happens so often. Oh, yes. More often than, I mean, and honestly, the reality is it doesn't even just happen with average everyday people. If you think about recent, like big, 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 uh, famous oh, no. I mean, we think about like a prince did not leave behind a will. For I don't think kid. Aretha Franklin Aretha did either. Franklin didn't either. And I mean, and these are so, like, you start to see for us, actually, it's funny that you mentioned that because those questions that you just said, like, what do you want? You know, where do you, where do you want to be buried? Things like that. Like, that the only reason that um, I have such a big family is eight brothers and sisters plus me. So there's nine siblings. The only reason that we sat down to talk to my parents, ask them those questions was because grandpa passed. When mm -hmm. our passed, we were like, oh, dang, you know, what, what about when papi and mommy, like my dad is 70. Like, not, I mean, I don't think he's going to die anytime soon. Cross my fingers. He's in good health. But when he does, we don't know. We don't know if he wants to be buried in DR. Does he want to cough in? Does he want to be cremated? Does he want mom and dad to be on the same plot of land buried next to his parents, her parents? I don't know. Here, there, where's the ceremony? I, like, we don't know what they want. And if you love them so, so much, which I'm sure every single person listening loves their family dearly, then you should know what their preferences are for those things. And so, and in my case, like our parents literally have nothing, like they have zero assets. And um, so we didn't, it wasn't appropriate for us to do a will per se, because they have literally nothing to leave us. But we're the generation that's sort of you know starting to the first generation here to like take take on these decisions so we all have to sit down and like create wills for ourselves for the future generations because that's the thing that our parents and our grandparents didn't put in place that we realize is so important um so i mean maybe if you're listening out there and you're like a will my parents ain't got nothing well i i relate to that but you still have to sit down with them and have a conversation about what they prefer what are their preferences and choices around their funeral you know do they want it where do they want to be like things like how do you want things to be managed and, and handled and um, you know, even if it's not a conversation of who gets what, because they don't have much, you still want to respect their wishes um, when, when, and you know, that does happen. Cause it's not a, if that happens, it's, it's a when, like, like Aaron said. Yeah. And I would say too, the other thing to consider, especially if your parents don't have assets and first of all, like really do a bit of a, a dig because sometimes there's even a very modest amount of assets that you might not be thinking about, whether it's that's true. social security that's true. Well, my, or that's, a pension. Dad, that's well, my dad does get social security. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. And then, you know, is that getting passed to the spouse? I mean, there's just little things kind of to think about with that. But then the other one, too, is if your parents also just don't have anything, who is paying for the funeral? Who is paying for any end of life care that might need to be happening? Like these are then conversations that need to be had amongst the siblings 100%. about how are we handling this? And that needs to happen before it's a problem. That is so true. Great point. From that conversation that we had, we ended up opening an account and all nine or you know, the younger ones, they're still in high school. But my siblings that are millennials and older are all contributing monthly to this account so that when this happens, we don't have to freak out and start pooling money. Who can put what? We already have an account that we've been contributing to that can cover funeral costs, medical costs, anything like that. So, so smart. Uh, yeah, girl. I mean, this and literally the only reason it happened was because our abuelo died so uh, suddenly and you know, it, I, I just, it's sad that we had to wait for something that tragic and like a crazy crisis to happen to take action. But that resonates with me a lot around some of my friends right now that are out of work. And I'm like, you guys, you waited for a crisis to start taking care of your finances. Why didn't you have your emergency fund in place? Why didn't you budget, you know, every month before that now the crisis is here and now you're dealing with the funeral at the same time as you're mourning, right? And that like the funeral costs while you're mourning, right? Now you're dealing with the crisis while mm -hmm. uh, trying to save. So if you can avoid uh, riding, what is it? Um, driving a boat while building it. If you could avoid doing that, yeah. you'd be better off. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very true. I mean, there's so much of this again, comes back to psychology. Like the fact that we just don't want to have to think about 
yes. the negative. We don't want to have to think yes. about the worst case scenario. Yes. And, you know, some of it comes down to the finances too, of course. I don't want to make light of that, that sometimes it's about not affording things. But yep. honestly, especially with the will, like, of course, it is ideal to go to an estate planning attorney, like get yep. everything notarized, make sure everything's above board. But worst case scenario, go to like Quicken Willmaker or go to NOLO or go to LegalZoom. My yep. very first will, it was just a very basic witnessed and notarized, but I downloaded it across, I don't know, like 120 bucks all yeah, in. Yeah, like yeah, it just 104, I think I paid 140. I think it's, it's, it's not a lot of money. And, and I think the reality is it's, it's uh, an investment because in the future, it's going to save you money, time, yeah. energy. So that's how And you save your loved ones. And the other plea on this topic, if you are just currently still not buying into our, you need a well conversation at the very least, Go to your bank accounts and go to your investment accounts, including your 401k or IRA, and make sure you have a beneficiary on all of those yes. accounts. Oh, yes. And make sure that yes. your beneficiary knows that they're the beneficiary. They're your beneficiary. That's right. Yep. And what that means, in case you've not heard that term before, is that's the person that inherits that money if and when you die. That's right. And by if, I mean when. Because again, as we've addressed, it's going to happen. <laughs> if and when you die, when you die. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's crazy because I think a lot of people um, don't realize that. They don't realize that they set up these accounts. They think they're doing everything the right way. And then if you die, all that stuff is literally just held up in legal limbo, literally just in, mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in legalese uh, purgatory. Like it's well, just- it has to go to probate court and then a judge gets to decide what he thinks or she thinks is fair. And again, coming oh. back to the prenup talk. Oh. You have the chance to take control and to decide what is fair within the realm of the law, but what is fair That's right. or someone else decides for you. So again, yeah. pitch for the will and the prenup. Do you want to outsource that decision to somebody else or do you want to be able to get that decision made for yourself? 100%. Um, as you guys can hear, Erin is friggin' fabulous. Well, thank you. I think what she does so well is just like she's a millennial who talks to other millennials in a way that millennials talk. Like if you could find a personal finance out there, a personal finance book out there, that references Beyonce, that's a win, okay? So you guys definitely need to get I, out this book if you haven't read it. I'm trying to remember she's referenced. I think she might be referenced in both books. <laughs> I think. Listen, I'll have to go back and search. You can't pass up on a hashtag Beyonce reference. You know what I mean? And especially, so I I, I read uh, your first book in 2018, and that was in the summer of 2018 when everything was all about On the Run to tour and everybody was trying to get me to go, my sisters, my friends, people like, you know, I was just like, look, First of all, I'm not a big, uh, huge concert venue type of person. Mm-hmm. I don't, unless it's like a show where I can go sit, like a theater, like a Broadway show or like a, a, a comedy show. Like I would love to go see Ali Wong live. I had tickets to go see her and then it got canceled because of coronavirus. But um, she's anyway, crazy. she's phenomenal. So like I would pay to go sit in a giant crowd venue to go watch Ali Wong perform. But I'm not so crazy about people jumping up and down, sweating, drinking and the music. I can't even see Beyonce because she's 800 feet away from me. Like to me, yeah. that's not how I get pleasure. I, I generally like live music in small venues where I can appreciate it. And so I quickly, when I started getting doing my, like my bare bones budget, like my values and like all my, you know, my money stuff, the, one of the very first things I cut was like huge music, like venues, like that concerts, festivals, like it's just not my thing. And so people were trying to push me to do that. I was like, look, love Beyonce, love her, but this is just not where my money's going to go. Not my $300. No, ma'am. No, sir. (laughs) Well, it's also super appropriate because the specific Beyonce reference was that Building an emergency fund is only for true emergencies and a secret pop-up concert by Beyonce is not an emergency, no matter how much you want to go. No matter how much it feels like an emergency to a 19-year-old brain. (laughs) It is. It is not. I'm sorry. It is not. 
Uh, all right, love. Well, I want to uh, obviously not take three hours of your time today, but this was so fun. I could go on for another three hours, literally. I mean, hey, we're all quarantined. It's just great <laughs> to see another human being. I love my husband dearly, but to see another person is also very exciting right now. <laughs> Seriously. And to talk about things that like uh, people need to hear this stuff and people need to see that it is so appropriate and relatable for even like two 30-year-old girls, uh, you know, in and near NYC. I kind of moved out recently, but in and around New York City to talk about this in a normal way without it being all like stuffy and stuff like that. Um, it doesn't have to, none of these conversations have to be stuffy. And also if the person that you talk to about money, work with, with money, whatever is not speaking to you in a way that makes sense to you, ditch and switch. Like it does not make sense to work with somebody who is not making this easy and understandable for right. you. That's right. And honestly, I remember a time where um, I think I was opening a CD. I don't remember what I was doing. I was sitting in a bank, talked to, a, talked to a banker, and they were saying things. I didn't understand what the hell they were saying. And instead of being like, wait, I'm sorry, can you explain to me what does that mean? I was just like, I don't want to feel dumb. So I'm just going to pretend that I understand what he said. So don't common. Don't do that. Don't well, do that. Please don't do that. And also just recognize, like, honestly, you're not going to come off sounding dumb. The thing is, like, they're so entrenched, myself included, in a certain jargon, in a certain language, that you honestly just straight up forget that other people, other don't, people don't know don't what this term that. means. Yes. Like, earlier when I said beneficiary, and then I had to, in my head, be like, not everyone knows what a beneficiary is. Please explain this for people. Yes. Like, I have my, that voice in my head is my sister. Because okay. she is not a money nerd. And she went on my book tour with me. And there was one specific, it was earlier on, but an event we did in LA. Yeah. Where she was in the back of the room. And at one point I said something and she went, explain what that means. <laughs> yes, sis, coming through with the support in person, live. Love yep. it. <laughs> and she would just occasionally be like the voice of the audience where she would holler out like, they don't know what diversification means in this context or whatever it was. You didn't plant her there. That's she was. No, a like that's just straight up. She was that comfortable just being oh like, please press pause, uh, rewind. That was not right. Yes, love that. And so you just, you, you have to be comfortable to say like, Hey, yeah, I'm not super comfortable with this. So if you're talking to somebody about investing and they're like, well, really, you should have a diversified portfolio based right. on both your time horizon and your risk tolerance. And then your oh, asset allocation okay. needs to get rebalanced every year. And if all of that was like, I'm sorry, what now? That sounds like Chinese to me as someone who doesn't speak Chinese. And that is so and that is fine. Yeah, I hear you on that because my brothers, they are so obsessed with video games and like Twitch and all these things. And, you know, I try to ask them to explain World of Warcraft and like some of the games they play and they try to start explaining it to me. I'm like, wait, what? What the heck? Wait, what is that? What if, wait, whoa, 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 go back. What is that? And they're like, that's how you get points. I'm like, okay, but but what? Like, and then they think that they're explaining it in the most basic terms, but mm -hmm. they don't get that non-gamers don't talk like that. So it is so relevant for any topic that you're so passionate about. Like you're in that world, assuming other people are in it with you and you all by yourself. So you yeah. got it explain the basics yeah. i mean investing especially has completely its own language in my investing book that's the first thing it's like listen we have to get on the same page in terms of the language because this is the language that gets used yes absolutely. just like with math just like with mandarin so i can mm -hmm. you could be like well where's your now that's i don't know in mandarin yeah, you gotta you get can say that vocab. That's so true. I mean, I remember as in middle school when I was learning French, they the first like three weeks of school was just vocab. It was just learning like how do yeah, you exactly how do you say pencil? What is the word for this? Like you just gotta get the vocab down and then you can try to get and to then you can put the sentence together. Exactly. Um, Erin, this was amazing. I freaking love this. I love you, love your work, you're a badass, you're such hashtag goals for me. And um, everything back at you, the YouTube <laughs> stuff, all of it. Also, you better be plugging all the seminar stuff you did with Berna. 
I yeah. was sitting there like in uh, actually, so, so much love with all of you guys. Yes. And it's funny you mentioned that that's literally what inspired me to do this show because I was kind of like, you know, these, like there were so many young people. I was, I was saying like, when I was 19, I made all these mistakes and there were kids in the chat. Like, or, I don't want to call them kids, but you know, they kind of are to me. They were in the chat. Like I'm 19 now. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. I feel so old now. And like, I started this at 23. So people who are 19 were not that far away. And now I'm like, Oh, I know I seem old oh. to you because I remember what 30 sounded like to me when I was 19. Oh, yes. 30 sounded like a whole grown like old person. 30, married. Yes. I'm just yes. ancient at this point. I know. And so then I, you know, I started thinking, I'm like, we just got to have more conversations like this so that younger people can come and find them. Because when you're 19, all your friends are 19. When you're 23, all your friends are 23. So how are you supposed to know what's coming up next and what wisdom you can get from a 23-year-old when you're 19 if you don't have 23-year-old friends? So for me, yeah. it's kind of like, you know, I got to get women on the show. I got to, even men, I'm going to open up the show to everybody soon, but I want to start with women because March was Women's History Month and April is Financial Literacy Month. And so how beautiful to just bridge those two by having financial literacy conversations with women. And our March of 2020 just got completely taken away from us. Hello. So we are going to celebrate and we're taking it back. Thank you. Taking it back. I will say though, too, the thing that I love about, like, you're very thoughtful about this. Bryn is very thoughtful about this, like the representation of who's coming on to things. Because one thing that I feel, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, that if you're talking and communicating and learning from someone who just doesn't get where you're coming from. Yes. Yeah, it's frustrating. And I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea. Like, and that's fine. I shouldn't be like, it's, there should be a niche group that that they find how I talk and what I do. Like, I'm very blunt. I'm very straightforward. Like, I get that that is not for everyone. A lot of New Yorkers follow me. Like, that's a big part of my base. (laughs) People here in New York. That's right. Sometimes in the South, not quite as palatable. And that's okay. (laughs) And I lived there for 10 years of my life. Like, it's fine. But I think what's important too is that. If how you've been learning about money has not been resonating, just find something else. Like that doesn't mean you're bad at money. That doesn't mean you can't get this. Just keep trying out other things until you find what makes it click for you. Yes. There have been interviews and conversations that I've had where I've tried to understand a particular concept for a very long time. And then someone will say like one sentence. I just go like, oh, mind blown. Right, right. Yeah. I actually, again, plugging my third book, but a woman I interviewed for that book. Yeah. The first section is all about how to talk about money at work. So talking about negotiation, asking for more, asking coworkers for salaries and a negotiation expert I interviewed, she said, well, the way I think about it is how much is an uncomfortable conversation worth to you? Are you willing to give up a 5%, 10% raise to have a 30 second uncomfortable conversation? I'm like, wow, boom. Like it's that simple where you're out here trying to be like, just ask your coworkers how much they make. It's so important. Close the wage gap. And we're like, yeah, all of that is so important, but making it super personal to you and like how much is it worth to you to be a little uncomfortable for a period of time? Total pivot in my brain. I I love that. And you know what that makes me think is if somebody chooses that it is so uncomfortable for them, they are literally willing to forego a $5,000 raise or whatever X amount of raise because they cannot fathom. Like they literally are up at night thinking and worrying and scared of the fact that they have to have that conversation and they might choose that. But I don't think the majority of average Americans would choose that if they thought. I don't think so. And I will also say, if that is your lived experience, if it's that anxiety inducing for a number like five grand, I would highly recommend checking out financial therapy. And I don't say that flippantly. I say because that means that your emotional relationship to money is so tense that even talking about it like this is so fundamentally uncomfortable 
that that is something that should get explored a little bit. A hundred percent. Financial anxiety is so real. Financial fragility, mm-hmm. which is slightly different, but is also real, real and can be coupled with financial anxiety, which uh, is something that definitely I think should be addressed with therapy. I mean, this is just like another type of emotional issue that you might be having if it's, you know, um, PTSD for something that you experience that also needs therapy. I mean, this is literally that type of emotional thing that you got. I love, I love that point that financial therapy is a thing. It's real. It is. Probably, even if you probably never heard of it, you know, look it up. And there's so many fabulous apps nowadays too that let you uh, find somebody who's a therapist um, so that you can kind of, you know, make it work for you wherever you are, especially during these coronavirus times. So, um, you know, yeah. it's good to look that, look for that if you need it. Yeah. All right, here we go. This is my last question to close out. If you could, I'm I'm actually going to, not if you could, when I do, take George Washington's face off the dollar bill and put your face on it and take the, it says United States of America across the top. I'm going to wipe that away. Sorry, USA. And I'm going to replace it with your money motto, money message, money slogan, whatever you want to call it, that you want everybody who ever touches money to see, what would your money motto be? Ooh, so historically, I've always said you have two options in life when it comes to money. Either you control money or money controls you. And while I think that that's important and salient, I would also say, is it worth it? Mm-hmm. to put that on money so that anytime you're making any sort of purchase, you're just quickly asking yourself, yes. is it worth it? That is so true. And it's great yeah. if it is. And like, listen, things that other people might find a waste of money. I will stand lattes till the end of time. <laughs> we didn't get into that, but I have very strong feelings about my latte. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? That's how I, that's, those are my feelings about wine. I have a wine subscription right. that I will never, I don't care how financially stressed I am. I'm not cutting my wine. It's an I essential part wine. of your budget. Yes. I, I think that fundamentally is what matters is that, you know, you referenced it earlier when you're like, listen, I cut out the big concerts because my friends wanted to go to it, but that just for me wasn't where I got the most joy. It's in my thing. Okay. We got to hit our baseline needs. We need to hit some saving stuff to think about future selves, but you also have to think about like you, just you, what brings you joy with how you spend money. And not everything is going to be like Marie Kondo. I feel oh, joy. That's the extreme but, for sure. It is, but like you also just have to make sure that at least a good chunk of your budget is not being spent in accordance with how other people want you to spend your money. It's truly about how you want to spend your money. So I would just say, is it worth it at the top? Yes, I love that. I'm going to put that one on there and uh, I will share with you once it's created, of course, as well as all this other content. Um, But yeah, you guys... Oh, Erin is amazing. And I bet you agree with me after listening to this or watching this. Um, if you want to find her, if you want to reach out to her, if you want to follow her, Erin, where can they do that to let you know that you inspired them today with your wisdom, your knowledge and your story? Yeah. Well, Instagram at Broke Millennial blog. because Someone is sitting on Broke Millennial. It's a whole other thing. <laughs> are, they, are they being ridiculous with how much? No, 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 no. Like somebody oh. started it years and years and years ago and just like, wow, Instagram won't give it to me. So annoying. It's not even it's active. Fine. Come on. No, the last time they posted was 2015. <laughs> Yo, come on, Instagram. Stop playing around. I'm like, come on. <laughs> so that's the only one that's different. Everything else is all broke millennial. So Twitter's at broke millennial. Admittedly, I'm like very rarely on Facebook, but there's a Facebook page that's broke millennial. And then of course, broke millennial.com is where you can find the website. Yep. My yep. books are wherever books are sold or your local library. I always yes. like to plug the library. And if it's not in your library, you can try requesting it. 
Yep. But you know, if you don't want to spend the money, that's fine. Go get it at the library. Exactly. The point is the knowledge. And then, you know, I've done that with a ton of books. Like I remember when I was really broke, I was working at a private education company and there was a library directly across the street. So I would leave work and go right to the library before I got on the train. I mean, I read so many fabulous books that later I eventually bought because I wanted to support. Like I remember reading The Secret History of Wonder Woman by Jill Lepore, which is a freaking amazing book. Uh, While we're on the theme of women, amazing book. And you guys should definitely check it out. And I read it at the library for free first. And then I went back and was like, you know what? I got to support Jill. That was was such a damn good book. so I went and bought it. So even if you're not able to buy books right now, yes, man, the library is amazing. And they also have the, at least the New York Public Library does have an app that you can also download audio books. Uh, for- yep. And then Libby, L-I-B-B-Y, um, I believe. Yes, yeah. Libby. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Check, these, check these things out. If you're thinking books are not in my budget right now, you should still find other alternative ways. Or sent you. When I, I'm not sure when this is going to drop, but you still might physically not be able to go to the library. So exactly. That's another reason. Exactly. Exactly. We might still be in coronavirus times for a while. So yep. um, great, great uh, point. But thank you so much, Erin. Um, Thanks for enjoy having me. So fun. Yes. This, it, it's a, a weekend coming up. So enjoy your weekend. Be cozy, be healthy, be safe. And um, tell PJ say hi and give your doggy a big hug. <laughs> yep. All back at you. And I just, I'm so excited for this. And I love everything you've been doing. It's been so fun to watch you. Thank you. I appreciate that.